Good morning. How's everyone? Awesome. One person is good. All right. Chris Bowers is good. Um, if you have a Bible, if you would, flip with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning as we continue on in our series called The Invasion of the Lamb over the Gospel of Mark. We're not too fancy here at FCQ. We just preach through books of the Bible. And so we've been walking through Mark for about 10 years or so. And we are a little over halfway done now. Um, pastoring, being a pastor, if you've never been one, uh, there's there's a lot of good things about being a pastor, and then there are some things that aren't so great about being a pastor. Um, this weekend I got to, and we'll get to experience kind of both of these. So yesterday and, and Friday I got to uh, officiate a wedding, uh, this beautiful couple, this beautiful family, and um, let me explain a wedding from a pastor's point of view. It's the easiest way to make money that has ever existed in the world. Um, you, you literally, you've got a script that you're reading from, and unless the, they've asked you to do a little quick sermon, which even then is usually just three to five minutes, um, your whole role, the whole process, is just to stand there and smile, look good for the camera, and then say something for like six or seven minutes, and you're done. And you have a paycheck, and it's awesome. And on top of that, you get invited to all these great things, like the rehearsal dinner and um, the reception, and you get a weekend full of free drinks, only water, uh, <laughs> and great food, and all of these things. And, and this has always been one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. Um, you kind of feel like you're robbing people, right? Because it's just, a, I would do it every weekend if I could. I mean, it's just so much fun. Um, the On the other hand, part of being a pastor is having to um, preach, and not just preach, I love preaching, but preaching difficult text. And, and that's one of the reasons we do book studies is because it forces us to look at everything that's in the Bible. Uh, and it would be a lot easier for me to pick easy passages to preach on week in and week out. Um, but when you, when you commit to looking through a book of the Bible, sometimes you encounter passages that you probably wouldn't have preached on otherwise. Um, and so this morning, just as a warning, we're, we're going to look at a, a pretty difficult text. Um, it's difficult to understand. And I think more than that, it's just difficult in that it challenges us in a very deep, on a very deep level. And so um, as we go, I'm praying that the Spirit will, will speak to us um, and that uh, He'll just protect us from, from whatever distractions or um, lies may come our way. Basically, the one sentence summary of, of the text this morning, um, Jesus is going to predict His own suffering and His own death. And then He's going to make that same kind of suffering a condition or a prerequisite for those who would want to follow him, for those who would want to be his disciples. So lots of fun, right? Aren't you all glad you came to church this morning? Um, the truth is all human beings suffer, right? We all suffer lots of different ways, sicknesses, uh, financial struggles, um, relational struggles. Everyone has in-laws, which is a big um, problem of evil in the world. Um, there's lots of ways we suffer, big ways, small ways. Sometimes we suffer for a short amount of time. Sometimes we suffer for a long amount of time. Sometimes suffering in various ways seems to stay with us for our whole lives. Um, I'm wearing my Aggie shirt today because out of all groups of people, I think Aggies are uniquely equipped to deal with suffering because we just lose a lot. It's a lot of hope and then a lot of losing, and that's kind of the cycle. Now, you'll have to forgive us. This is why we were so obnoxious when we had Johnny Manziel is because we were winning for the first time in a long time, right? Um, and so, uh, as an Aggie, I think I've always I've been good at this, right? I, it's just part of life. You're going to lose at everything. And it's going to disappoint you, and you just got to move on. 
and smile. It's kind of like being a Dallas Cowboys fan, right, Marcus? I'm going to pay for that later. There's a, a further truth that's often overlooked in the Bible is that Christians are actually promised repeatedly in the scriptures that we're going to suffer. Um, so I'll read just a few texts to you. I could read dozens. Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Paul says, I've counted all of my gains as loss for the sake of Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You'll see this link in this text and in most of these texts. It's a link between our suffering and Christ's suffering. Christians are called to share in some sense in Christ's suffering. And like we suffer as he did, so we will be resurrected like he was resurrected and receive eternal life. Colossians 1.24, Paul again says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. First Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Again, this link between sharing sufferings. So the scriptures, and this is all throughout, I have uh, 20, 24 verses I could have read for you um, that talk about rejoicing in suffering and talk about not being surprised in suffering. And so it's kind of an oxymoron. When you, when you find a Christian who is surprised at their suffering uh, or is upset at their suffering, you find a Christian who's probably not too familiar with the Bible. Um, because it's a constant theme throughout the scriptures. And, and again, like I said, it's a kind of a basic human fact. We all suffer in, in lots of different ways. Um, even though I think, you know, first world problems. Most of our suffering is probably pretty small relative to the global community that we are a part of. Um, and you'll find that there are three types of people who try to avoid suffering and think they can avoid suffering. And, and kind of the phrase I like to use mockingly is they think they can get out of life alive, right? Um, it's, the first group would be the powerful, the very, very powerful. Um, the powerful actually are pretty capable of avoiding a lot of suffering. They have power. They have influence. They can move things around in order to avoid suffering. The second group are the wealthy, usually also powerful. But money does a lot of things, and money can prevent a whole lot of suffering. Money can't buy happiness. can't buy a wave runner, and no one's ever been sad on a wave runner. <laughs> So the wealthy often try and, and think and sometimes succeed in avoiding suffering. And then, sadly, the third group would be religious people. Religious people also often think that they can avoid suffering. Um, and sometimes, in fact, that's what draws them to religion. This idea that if I'm close to a God, not even the Christian God, but any God, any religion, if I obey, if I do the right thing, then he'll bless me and I won't have to go through certain of the hard parts of life. Um, but we find in the Christian faith throughout the scriptures that's not... Um, what is told to us. Now, beyond that, what I want to argue this morning, what might be offensive to you, um, but what I, I truly think this text is saying, is that the kind of suffering promised to Christians in the Bible, by Jesus himself here, is not the same kind of suffering that all humanity shares in. I believe that Christians are promised and called to suffer in ways that not every human being is called a suffering. I think Christian suffering is distinctively Christian. Um, it's more than just sickness and relational problems and financial problems. The whole world experiences that type of, of suffering. Um, when the, the scriptures, and as we see this morning, Jesus talks about suffering, he'll, he'll be very specific about why you're suffering and what it looks like. 
and it's not a common denominator throughout humanity. It's something that only is available to those who have chosen to follow Christ. It's challenging, it's hard to hear, and it's a deep truth. But let's start by reading our text, okay? So we're in Mark 8. We'll pick it up in verse 31 and read through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark 8, 31 through 9, 1. And he, this is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So let's start by putting the passage in some context, okay? The Gospel of Mark as a whole, Jesus has showed up on the scene, and he's announced that the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Um, that earth is going to be transformed so that it reflects God's will in heaven. And he goes out and starts having this kingdom ministry. And so he heals people, and he casts out demons, and he forgives sins. Again, he's enacting the kingdom. He's showing this is what God's will is. Um, sickness is not supposed to be a part of God's good creation. And so Jesus encounters it and gets rid of it. And this way he's bringing the kingdom. And we have chapter after chapter of Jesus enacting and, and following this kingdom ministry. And then last week we saw um, the, the text we read this just now falls right on the heels of last week's text where Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And we've talked about how this is a um, global, cosmic, political, and theological title. The Messiah is the Jewish king who would be the emperor of sorts, the king of kings. The one who would subjugate all the nations under the rule of God. And then immediately after that, after Peter proclaims Jesus the Messiah, Jesus proceeds to completely redefine what anyone would have ever thought about the Messiah. So this text has three parts to it, okay? Um, the first part in verse 31 through 33, we might call a cruciform Messiah. A cruciform Messiah. This word cruciform is a beautiful word. word I, I love to have people use this word. It, it means cross-shaped, self-sacrificial love. Um, and so Jesus is going to explain that he's a cruciform Messiah. He's going to radically redefine what it means to be a Messiah. In the second part of this text, in verse 34 through verse 38, we're going to get commands of a cruciform discipleship. Of what it means to follow Jesus in a cruciform way, loving and sacrificing in the same way that he loves and sacrifices. And then thirdly, in verse 1 of chapter 9, we get a kingdom prediction. Jesus will predict that there will be a very powerful sign of the kingdom that will confirm his words and vindicate his ministry. So, here's our strategy this morning. We're going to go through each section one at a time. We'll talk about the text. We'll wonder out loud how it might apply to our lives. So, ready, set, go. Okay? 
we start with this first section. Um, immediately, Jesus begins to teach them the Son of Man is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by all these religious leaders, and he's going to be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. Now, this is the first of three passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark. Three times Jesus will predict his eventual death at the hands of the Jewish and Roman authorities in Jerusalem. The disciples still never get this. They're still confused by this after three fairly plain predictions. And as I've taught through the Gospels with various people, um, when we get to the point where the disciples flee Jesus and, 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 and don't understand again, they all look back at these passages and go, how much clearer could he have been, right? I mean, it's like he, he gave them a handbook with laminated pages. This is what's going to happen. It's supposed to happen. But yet when it happens, they're scared, they're uncomfortable, they're fearful, they're confused. The reason is because... Jesus' definition of a Messiah is so radically different from what anyone in the world, particularly a first century Jew, would have expected of a Messiah. The expectations for the Messiah were pretty simple. Among other things, they were supposed to come in and kick Roman tail, spill Roman blood, and eventually build up the empire of Israel over the whole world. That's what they thought the kingdom of God would be. They were waiting for a king who would come like a warrior with military force and, and start to do this. Jesus, though, says instead of winning against the Romans, instead of winning against the powers that be, the rulers of this evil age, he's going to actually lose to them. I don't know if you're a military planner. I've read The Art of War. Um, this is not a good strategy for winning or transforming things, right? If, um, I'm trying to think of a parallel, okay? And so the, the first parallel I thought of, so the disciples' jaws would have been dropped at this point. I mean, this is, it's hard to imagine how radical this is to them because we're so used to it. Um, a parallel, I was going to do Obama and ISIS, um, but then I figured that's, we're in the deep south. Some people still think it's a closet Muslim, okay? So let's not go there. So let's take it back a few years to George Bush and Al-Qaeda, right? Um, it might be as shocking what Jesus is saying here as if one day you turned on the news after 9-11 and George Bush was giving a speech. And he said, we're going to let Al-Qaeda win. In fact, I'm going to go over there and turn myself up to them and let them kill me because I love them. And we would all collectively go, someone needs to capture that man right now. <laughs> Put him in some kind of asylum. I hopefully the Secret Service is not letting him out of their sight, right? Hopefully he's not booked any trips overseas. That's not what a president does, right? That's not what an authority figure does. Um, if we're going to defeat the enemy, we as human beings, the race, think we need to militarily overthrow them. Shock and awe. We need to bomb the mess out of them. We don't lose to them. We don't let them kill us. But yet, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the Messiah, and I will accomplish the victory of God. But we're about to walk face first into a situation where I'm willingly going to die. Jesus says the Messiah has not come to kill and destroy. He's come to forgive and love and be killed by his enemies as he loves them and as he forgives them. This radical redefinition. For you and I, I think the import of trying to understand how radical this statement might be uh, has a couple of, of ways it might mean, um, ways it might apply to our lives. First, and the way we view God. Um, 
the Christian scriptures and Christian theology are very clear that Jesus, the human Jesus, is the clearest picture of God that we've ever gotten. Um, he's the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrew says. John, and John, Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John 1, it says, no one's seen God. He's been revealed through Jesus Christ. Um, now, there have been other revelations in the Old Testament and various prophets and things like that, but the clearest, most perfect picture is in Jesus, who is God. He's not like God. He's not sort of like God. He actually is God. When you see Jesus, you see God. When Jesus acts and when Jesus talks and when Jesus gives his opinion on something, this is God acting and God talking and God giving his opinion on something. However, one of the things I've noticed as I've pastored and as I've done theology is that often our view of God is not very Christ-like. We often continue to think of God as a God who rules by power and force. As a God who one day will enforce his will um, through, again, violence and destruction. Um, and I, I just finished a book, actually, called A, a Christ-like God, A More Christ-like God. What I've been thinking for years that that every year, every month, we need to sit down and wonder how close our view of God is to Jesus. Do we really view God Himself as cruciform, as self-sacrificial in love, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do we really believe that His plan to redeem His world is not based on the human wisdom of military force, but on the divine wisdom? self-sacrifice and service and patience and legitimate offers to repent and believe and even willing to die for his enemies. And then secondly, I think it, it should affect our view of the kingdom of God. We talk a lot about the kingdom of God at FCQ. We believe that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, started it, um, but that it's not yet fully finished. This is obvious to look around the world. There's a lot of evil things still happening in the world. When the kingdom's fully here, this will be a perfect place, a new heavens and a new earth. Um, but when we use the word and language kingdom, it's kind of can get dangerous because people have and still do take this kingdom language and use it in a military way, right? We need to take over the world, um, however that might mean, whatever force we might need to use. Um, but for Jesus, the kingdom does not come through the cross. It comes through, or it does not come through the sword. It comes through the cross. And we've got to learn and, and slowly start to agree with Jesus that this is how the kingdom comes. This is how we should be a part of the world. Um, I think particularly, I won't comment at length here, but um, you think of all the culture wars Christians get into. And, and, and you, you should ask yourself, is this more Christians trying to control the world through power and keep and hold on to rights, or is this more Christ-like, where you give up rights and you witness through sacrifice? through letting others hurt you, through kind and patient love. The cruciform Messiah here. We move on to his probably hardest words here now as he talks to the disciples and the crowds. He gives them instructions for what it means to follow him. Um, and this is the worst evangelism I've ever seen. Uh, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Um, now, when I was, I became a Christian, it was a very positive evangelical approach, right? Um, I get to eternal life. Um, I have a pretty good life right now. There's one thing missing, though, and it's that relationship with Jesus, and now I've got everything that I could possibly need. Jesus here, his approach to saying what it means to follow him is to 
say you must become a martyr. You know what a martyr is? It's someone who dies for their faith. Um, we often think of Jesus and his cross as something special, just meant for Jesus. Um, but in this passage and others, it's, it's clear that Jesus also expects his followers to go down that same path. And in fact, his earliest followers, his disciples, were martyrs. They ended up on crosses. A lot of the early Christians were martyrs. In fact, the early Christians, because of commands like this from Jesus, were so fervent and so wanted to be a martyr that the church had to work really hard to get them to not try to be martyrs. Right? Like, don't throw yourself in front of the bus. That doesn't count. We're not going to call you a hero if you knew that, right? Um, Karl Barth once said uh, that um, one can't make themselves a martyr. Right? One can only prepare themselves to be made a martyr. Does that make sense? One can only decide in their mind that they're willing to give up their life. And then someone else will put them in a situation where they have to put action to that belief and to that commitment. Um, martyrdom, as Craig Hobie would say, is also um, not something just for a special elite of Christians. Martyrdom is the call for every Christian on different levels. Um, we're all called to be martyrs, um, even if that means we're not all called to die for our faith. Um, we're all called to, one, be committed to martyrdom, to be committed to die for our faith, and then two, we're all denying ourselves in various ways and sacrificing in various ways. For some, that will mean giving up of their lives. For most of us, that probably doesn't mean that. But that doesn't mean that we need to take the call to martyrdom less seriously. Um, Jesus here says, pick up your cross. We usually focus on the your or the his, take up his cross, and we don't focus on the word cross, okay? We need to focus on this word cross. The cross in the first century is a very powerful symbol of all that is wrong with the world. It was how Romans had um, in, invented a, a cruel and tragic and shameful way to kill anybody who would oppose them. Um, I would love if I had a time machine, maybe it had a hot tub attached to it, and <laughs> I know who got the reference and who didn't, and they can tell a lot, um, and be able to bring someone from the first century into the 21st century and have them see crosses everywhere, and people wearing crosses and crosses on the walls. And I think their first thought would be, wow, we thought we were really bad people in our generation. But at least we didn't like the cross. These people have sort of like worshipped the cross. These are like, it's a generation of Hitlers. Like this is the worst possible thing imaginable. It's remarkably, um, historically, it's, it's a, a remarkable fact that the cross, the symbol of evil and destruction and empire, has turned into a symbol of love and forgiveness um, because of what Jesus has done on it and how it's or these disciples followed him on that path. Um, but the cross, make no mistake, is a, political, um, is a political consequence. It's a punishment by Rome for criminals who have decided to not be okay with the status quo. Not everyone was put on a cross. If you were a robber or a common thief, you were not put on a cross. You were put on a cross if, you, if Rome at least thought you were trying to subvert their way of living and their way of ruling the world. The cross was reserved for revolutionaries of which there were plenty, especially Jewish. Um, and so the Romans, um, by Jesus' time, would have crucified at least, this is the most conservative number that I, I've ever given you, 100,000 Jews um, would have been crucified, naked on the cross. Um, when Jesus says this, it's like saying to someone, if you're going to follow me, strap yourself into an electric chair. 
you're dying. I'm going to the electric chair to die. And if you want to follow me, you're coming this direction too. As we saw in those earlier passages, Paul says, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. The earlier disciples did share in the um, sufferings of Christ. Now, um, there's a couple of things we could say about this phrase, take up your cross and follow me. Um, actually, historically, this is actually Jesus is borrowing this phrase. So Jewish revolutionaries would often use this phrase to pump themselves up before trying to go to war with Rome. Um, you know, if you've seen any great army or military movie, um, you'd know these big speeches right before the battle, right? But the captain or the commander gets everyone pumped up, gets everyone willing to die, and gets everyone willing to go run in with all of their strength and with all of their bravery. Now, Jewish revolutionaries would often chant this before they would start some kind of a conflict with Rome. Take up your cross, take up your cross, take up your cross. Because, most likely, they would all end up on a cross, right? It was this phrase, be willing to die for it. Jesus takes that rhetoric and then subverts it slightly, right? He says, take up your cross, but it's not because we're about to get swords and go in and fight with the Rome, Romans. It's because we're about to go peacefully towards the Romans. It's because we're about to go show them love and our moral standing in the world will put us in conflict with the powers to be. Um, this is why the cross, and to say take up your cross or to bear your cross, is not the same thing as having to deal with a sickness or having to deal with financial problems or having to deal with in-laws. Those are all sufferings that are common to humanity. A cross, though, is something you suffer based on a decision. It's not an accident. It's not unexplainable. You can trace it back to a decision and a commitment you made. Jesus commits to living a certain way and he knows inevitably it will lead to a cross. Um, as John Howard Yoder, one of my favorite scholars, says, I wish I could read you this, this whole chapter he has on this phrase. Um, the cross is the price of social nonconformity. The cross is what happens when you have chosen, because of Jesus and as a Christian, to not live the type of life the world expects you to live. And suffering and punishment, and sometimes, rarely in our case, death might come because of it. Um, so here's how I think this plays out in our world. The <clears throat> Gospels and, and Jesus, the, the moral witness we're called to, we're called to be peaceful people in a world full of violence and full of war. Um, now someone who, who is very committed to nonviolence, as, as some of you know, um, it creates a surprising amount of conflict, even with people who love me, family members, friends. Um, the idea that maybe we should slow down on violence and consider wars at a slower pace um, makes me like some sort of enemy to them um, in that conversation, right? Um, I don't do this like I used to when I was 20. I like arguments. Now that I'm old, I'm 26. Um, <laughs> turning 27 on Friday, uh, I don't do this as much because I just don't like it. Um, but put, if you put something on Facebook, right? If I were to put something on Facebook about, hey, have we thought about peaceful solutions to this conflict or this or this or that, um, I would immediately get attacked by people on Facebook. Now, let's be clear. Getting bullied on Facebook is at the lowest totem pole of suffering, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It's just an example that this still exists, right? Imagine if you took a real stance and not just a status on Facebook. People actually care about these things, and they actually will confront you about them. Um, we're called to live peacefully in a world of violence and war. Um, one of the reasons I'm committed to nonviolence 
and you don't have to be, and you don't have to be as committed as I am, um, is because I don't think martyrdom makes sense without a nonviolent approach to life. I had a conversation with a buddy who is very much against nonviolence, um, and it finally got to the point where I asked him, okay, in your worldview, with your beliefs, would it ever be okay or appropriate to be a martyr? And he thought five, ten minutes, and he said, I can't think of a situation where you would be a martyr. And I said, don't you think that's a problem in your theology? And he goes, yeah, it's a problem. I, don't, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, you can never be a martyr if you think it's okay to kill someone to protect yourself, right? Martyrs are made by people who have said, I'm not going to fight back. I've given up my rights. And if it means dying, it means dying, I believe, in someone who's defeated death and death doesn't have the same scare or sting to me that it once had. Um, we're called as well to, to live generously in a world of wealth and greed. Um, this puts us at odds with the world. We're called to live um, as loving people, even loving our enemies, in a world that wants to segregate and exclude and is full of hate. We're called to be non We're called to nonconformity socially as Christians. And it's when we suffer because of that nonconformity that we might say we're taking up our cross. Does that make sense? All suffering is real, right? Sicknesses and, and deaths in the family and financial struggles, those are all very much legitimate forms of suffering. God cares about them. God wants to come and comfort you through the Holy Spirit. You need pastoral counseling for things like that. Those are all very real forms of suffering. But there is a distinct form of Christian suffering. That comes about because you've chosen to take a stand in the world based on who Jesus is and how he has called you to act. And then we come to the third section here as we finish up with the kingdom prediction in, in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um, Jesus makes this prediction. Something big is going to happen to prove the kingdom before some of these people die. Um, there's lots of options of how to interpret this. We won't spend too much time on it. Um, an atheist or an academic elite scholar might just say Jesus was wrong. Jesus actually thought there'd be some kind of huge apocalyptic moment where the kingdom showed up fully before these people died. It just didn't happen, right? It's wrong. I have reasons to believe Jesus is not wrong when he says things, um, and so I explore different interpretive uh, uh, possibilities. One of them is Jesus could be referring to his transfiguration, which comes right after this, um, where he's revealed in all of his divine glory. Um, I think the problem with that is the death clause. Um, this is seven days later. No one's died, right? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure why I would say until um, some of you won't die. The implication seems to be a lot of you will die, but some of you will still be around. Um, some have said this refers to the cross or the resurrection. Um, some have said this might refer to Pentecost. You see the Spirit falling. Again, I think with all of those examples, you still have most of those people alive, the disciples and, and Jesus' followers. Um, what most biblical Christian scholars have thought for a long time, and, and which I think is the best option here, is Jesus is actually referring to the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. Um, which doesn't mean much for us, but in a Jewish worldview, this would be a monumental occasion. Jesus consistently predicts that the temple will be destroyed. Um, and, and Jesus consistently replaces the temple. He forgives people. He becomes the sacrifice to cover sins. Um, and so when the temple is destroyed... The earliest Christians took this as a vindication of what Jesus had said. This was the kingdom coming in power. Um, further, in Matthew 24, a different gospel, it links up this prediction with the temple being destroyed. 
I wouldn't die for that interpretation, but I, I think it's the most likely. Um, as an example, we used last week, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi, this political city, to say he's the king, kind of subversively. An example for this would be like, if I were to go to the White House, and that's what we used last, ha- last week and said I was the president, right? That would be subversive. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Patriot Act expired, right? The NSA is no longer collecting things. Because I'm about to be put on a lot of lists, okay? I'm about to be put on a lot of lists. The parallel I would give for this is if I were to just go to the White House and say I'm the real president and the White House is about to be destroyed and will never come back again, right? Now, government officials, I am not planning an attack on the White House. To be clear, this was a pastoral illustration in the sermon. Um, so I, I think that would probably be one of our better bets at interpreting this prediction. Um, and what it means for our lives is that it's just another reminder in, in all of these ways, the transfiguration, the cross, the resurrection, the Pentecost, um, the, the destruction of the temple, um, all of these things are signs and proofs that the kingdom, what Jesus is doing and started, is real. Um, it's not just a pipe dream of some first century Jew. Um, this really is God coming to invade the world and transform it and redeem it, not through violence and not through military overthrow, but through love and patience and sacrifice. And I think it's always a good reminder to you and I to um, know, especially in a world where it doesn't often look like the kingdom is real, um, that the kingdom is in fact real, even though it might be small, even though we might be in the early stages of the kingdom. Um, the kingdom is a mustard seed. It starts out small and it grows over time. You might think 2,000 years is a lot of time for it to grow bigger than it is right now, right? Um, but as one theologian put it, for all we know, we're still the early church, that make sense? For all we know, there's going to be a hundred more thousand years of civilization. And what we call the early church the first couple centuries, they'll be calling us the early church. These people were just getting it figured out, right? Um, we don't know the timeline. We don't know what's been long or what's been short or things of that nature. And so um, we end all of our sermons and the center point of our, our worship here at First Colony is at the table as we come and participate in communion. At the table this morning, I'd ask um, that you be reminded um, as you come at the table, we confess Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is Messiah. But we do so by noticing that he died for us. He poured out his blood for us. He gave his body for us. Jesus is a cruciform Messiah. He's a Messiah who sacrificed his life for us. And as we come to the table, we are called to commit to living the same type of life, to be willing to deny our own rights, to be willing to make sacrifices, to be willing to make the ultimate cost if it came to that. Um, We're called to share in Christ's sufferings. We're called to realize that um, the path to glory involves suffering. Um, The cross is not an accident on the way to glory. Um, The cross is a necessary step on the way to glory.